0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Pretty good. How are you doing? Why do you smile as you say that, Josh? Because of... <laughs> because you're doing the, pretty good, I guess.
1: Well, it's always how do you... I've heard so many of these conversations where it's, it starts out... With the hi so and so, how are you doing? And mm-hmm. and and it, it's it's hard to capture. I always wanted to actually give you the Christopher Christopher Hitchens line of it's too early to tell. <laughs>
0: uh, I'm trying to think of a reply that says something about Christopher Hitchens, but nothing's coming that to, would be, to mind. Maybe that would be nice. I'm sure <laughs> the, you're right. Nothing nice is coming to mind. I'm sure uh, something mean but funny will eventually come to mind. But not actually nothing at all is coming to mind now. Um, so. Uh, let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show. Available on both streaming video and via audio podcast, rate and review us, and so on. You are Josh Summers, well-known yoga and meditation teacher and guru. Uh, maybe, okay, maybe not guru, but well-known yoga and meditation teacher. You have been doing with me a series of uh, conversations that you dubbed the Dharma of Bob. Uh, I pretended to resist that. For a while, but I'm warming up to it. I'm Bob.
1: That's good. You're Bob. And, um, you know, the the reason I'm I'm slightly allergic or I have an issue with the term guru is, A, there's so many bad actors that run under that name. Mm-hmm. That's one reason. And then the second is that um, I have a long history. I lived in India for a little while after college. And, How long? Um, How long? For about a, about a year. Huh. Uh, sort of doing a informal Peace Corps type uh, bit of teaching. Uh, Is teachings. that where you
0: were introduced to meditation in a serious way? No.
1: Um, I actually was interested. The, the first form of meditation I did was kind of a positive visualization practice that I learned mm-hmm. in high school that would just be kind of a fancy self-help in a way. And then I, I did get into yogic meditation when I was in India, but I was just teaching uh primary school there and uh and did a little bit of yoga study when i was there okay. but the guru thing but the but the problem is when i was in india with the family that i was living with i developed a bit of an indian accent <laughs> and, and 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 if and when so whenever someone mentions the guru in, informally i often will slip into something which would then get me in deep trouble now so i it would I,
0: get you I, canceled now
1: I, I kind of freeze up when the term guru is mentioned
0: by the way, is it the case now that doing any foreign accent is in some circles at least cancel worthy or?
1: The only one that I might consider doing is the Irish accent.
0: Why? Do you have Irish ancestry? So you're exempt? I've lived there too. I spent a year of university
1: in Ireland. Mm. So I feel like I, and I have, I have Irish godchildren.
0: Mm. So that, that exempts me. Okay. I have actual Irish ancestry. Which explains so, a certain amount, but we needn't get into that. Um, so what should we get into?
1: Well, where are we in the Dharma of Bob?
0: Where are we in the Dharma of Bob? Uh, last time we talked about the current status of my meditation practice. If we have time, we can talk a little about that at the end today. Uh, I think you had suggested, uh, you had been uh, faithfully and commendably reading uh the newsletter, non zero newsletter, and you noted that in a recent um issue I got into this idea of the uh explain excuse conflation, this idea that some people have that to explain something is to excuse it. Uh or
1: or, ju- or justify it. To justify and, it, um, yeah.
0: yeah. Um the uh so, and you thought, and I do think it's worth talking about that a little and then, uh, we wanted to get into a question raised by a commenter on the newsletter, uh, that's, uh, uh that was actually left under a different post, uh, but referred to our conversations. This is from somebody who's been, uh, watching or listening to our conversations. Um, and that's about how you mobilize, uh, productive forces on social media. It's one thing to point out. How people are being needlessly tribalistic or whatever word you want to use on social media and being destructive, uh, when they may or may not realize it. It's another thing, uh, to actually inspire enough people to behave differently on social media and make a difference. So, uh, I want to respond to that person's challenge to at least, uh, think aloud about how you might do that. And then, uh, if, and then if we, if we have time, you wanted to get into, uh, myth
1: yeah i myth. think that's relevant to what what you're up
0: to okay good but
1: but but also the phrase that that you kind of threw out uh, as we set this up is is the idea of existential psychological threats and that's that's a, that's what i was sort of getting at with the, where are we in your dharma that there's a you have this view that right. the, at at the core the, at the core of the diagnosis are these existential psychological threats and so oh. Say more about that. What do you mean by an existential yeah. psychological threat?
0: So this occurred to me, the, the, that I believe this only occurred to me while I was writing the newsletter in which I talked about the, uh, well I called it the explain, excuse conflation, sheerly for the, uh, I don't know if alliteration is quite the right word, but the, the, uh, you know, uh, having two words in a row that begin with EX, you know? But you're right, you could substitute justify for explain. Uh, and I was, um, I was looking at an example. I mean, the context for the newsletter was that this interesting guy whom I've since taped uh, a podcast with and is now in my, uh, uh, podcast feed, Augustine Fuentes, uh, an anthropologist at Princeton, had written this piece for Science, a highly esteemed journal, uh, on the 150th anniversary of publication of, uh, The Descent of Man. No, it must be the 140th, Right. 1881? Anyway, uh, kind of, uh, critical of some aspects of Descent of Man and, and, and rightly critical of some aspects of Darwin's own belief system. But I did challenge him on one point he made, uh, he said he thought, the uh, Descent of Man, quote, was offering justification for, uh, empire and genocide. And I thought that actually no, Darwin was describing how the dynamics by which uh, people's one people conquers another people, even wipes out another people. But I didn't see him embracing it, and I thought that uh, that Augustine was uh, slipping too easily from someone's attempt to explain something into accusing them of excusing it or justifying it. Okay, um, and I realized, you know, there are other contexts in which something kind of like this has long driven me crazy. Like, specifically, if I say, as I have often said, uh, you know, if you, if you look at what some of these terrorists say before they like shoot up an American nightclub or something or while they're doing it, not infrequently they say they're doing it because America is bombing, uh, majority Muslim nations or America invaded this or that or, uh, and, You say that by trying to, you know, in in the way of trying to explain why they're doing it, uh, possibly to help us develop policies that will be less inclined to, uh, foment uh, terrorism. And people accuse you of, of excusing it or justifying. You're saying, oh, so you're saying they're, they're justified in doing it. And you say, no, I'm not, I'm not commenting on that at all. I'm just trying to explain it. Uh, Now, the the thing that was going on in the Darwin case is, is I think, a little different in its underlying logic, but it was another case, I thought, of looking at someone who's explaining something and accusing them of trying to justify it, and I realized, I really think this is a a serious problem that uh, gets in the way of productive discourse about our foreign policy and a lot of other things, and... um, really gets in in the way of having a more peaceful world um and 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 I realized you know I have been saying on uh, you know as part of the kind of apocalypse aversion project that I'm pursuing in the the non zero newsletter I've been saying that a big part of our problem on this planet is the psychology of tribalism, and I've said that consists of largely of cognitive biases, by which I meant confirmation bias, attribution error. But I've come to realize that I also mean some psychological tendencies that aren't classified generally as cognitive biases, but are deeply problematic. And so if you wanted a rubric that encompasses all of them, like this human tendency to think that people are excusing something when they're explaining it, that that they're uh, exonerating someone when they're explaining why someone did something bad or for example um, if, if you want a rubric that encompasses that on the one hand uh, and cognitive biases per se on the other as well as uh, uh, another problem which is the, 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 the retributive not just the retributive impulse but kind of the intuition that, that retribution is justified that I think is another problem uh, that we are saddled with, uh, and, and I think all of these problems have, in some sense, a basis in the genes, in in the genetic kind of infra- infrastructure of human nature. Uh, and I just realized that uh, you know I need a label that encompasses all these things, whether or not they're they're categorized as cognitive biases per se and because i do think overcoming them is so critical if we're going to uh, save the planet it's fair to call them existential psychological threats this was my my big epiphany while writing the um, the darwin piece in the newsletter yeah um
1: one question i had is with both you mentioned a few sort of under the rubric of existential psychological threat you mentioned this the cognitive biases piece the the uh the the conflation between explaining and excusing something and also the, this retributive impulse mm-hmm. to 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 want to exact revenge in a way and and I'm as I'm listening to you I was trying to figure out is would could you could you imagine there being a kind of root uh perception or root tendency in the mind that 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 gives rise to those branch expressions so one thought that occurred is that it, it 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 might be something like just a tendency to be privy or just a tendency to to too easily accept a single cause explanation or a monocausal explanation and because the complexity of the situation to really tease it out would would kind of overload the cognitive system
0: um well, so, so,
1: so a tendency towards facile, facile e- explanations yeah. in a way that-
0: I mean uh, you could i mean th- there uh, there I- there there is on the one hand, I would say, there is a human penchant for economical explanation and simple stories uh, and sometimes we take that too far. Often, probably. But I would also say that in this case, um, you know, oh, I, 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 I think we'll go ahead. I'm just thinking of the, the example that you use around around
1: terrorism and, and it particularly terrorism that involved, you know, Islamic fundamentalist form of that. And the, the the simple narrative is that those actors are just acting based on some buggy. Doctrine in a religious text that they are adhering to, and 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 that's the only reason why that that mm. that's occurring.
0: Well, I mean, as far as but as far as kind of monocausal explanations, they could just as easily accuse me of having one, right? If I'm saying like they're they're mad about American foreign policy, that's like a that's like a just a one dimensional explanation th- they might say. Well, that's uh, your, that's the only one you're speaking to, right? Yeah, no, I would say ultimately it's a whole lot more complicated than that. You're right. I would say, and now you have to look at like how they grew up, why they weren't getting, uh, kind of, uh, social affirmation or whatever they weren't getting through other means. Why, why did they, why were they driven to this extreme form of expression and on and on. You're right. I would have a complex story, uh, to tell and, and I think it's true that some of these people would have a more, simple kind of essentialist story to tell. Like in, in, in some cases, they would literally think uh they are inhabited by evil. That's it. There's this force called evil. Some of them might even say Islam is evil or whatever. Uh Or Islam is inherently violent and they've been infected with the... Isla- whatever. You're right. Some, some of these people would come up with, with simple explanations. But I want to I explain why I don't think that's all that's going on here. Uh, you know, first of all, I come at this from a background of evolutionary psychology, and it is in the nature of evolutionary psychology, certainly mainstream evolutionary psychology, to see the mind as like a, uh, kind of an accumulation of, of kludges almost. I mean, a kludge being, you know, a kind of a, uh, in computer terminology, I think it's like, It's like a, it's like a solution that works okay for a particular problem, kind of. And, and, uh, you know, in evolutionary psychology, the idea is that the mind consists of a lot of little, uh, things that themselves evolved to solve specific adaptive problems. Now, all of them serve, uh, the bottom line of natural selection, or did at one point at least in our, in our history. Uh, perhaps when we were in a very different, uh, kind of environment, but, but that bottom line being genetic proliferation. So it, it has to be the case that anything that is a biological adaptation was, when it earned its way into our lineage, conducive to genetic proliferation. But still, uh, beyond that, the different parts of the mind in this scenario solve different problems. I mean, just, just to take something anyone can understand, the hunger drive versus the sex drive, those are different things. Hunger drive is about staying alive long enough to reproduce. Sex drive is about reproducing. Uh, and, and, and if you look at a finer level and ask, well, where does uh, confirmation bias come from? Where does attribution error come from? In other words, what adaptive problem was being solved? And then if you assume that this this tendency to equate... Uh, Explain well uh, the retributive uh, instinct or impulse, another ad- adaptive problem, um, and then if you get to this uh, tendency to equate explaining why someone did something with uh, excusing them for it. Uh, I, I, I. First of all, it is my intuition, although this is not a well uh developed part of evolutionary psychology. It's not like some consensus that that tendency has a basis in our genes. I do believe, I do suspect it does, but in any event, the, the, the evolutionary psychologist's first impulse is to look at these case by case and ask what adaptive problem do they solve? Now, I do think they all have something in common. They, they all are uh, related... To the fact that people evolved in a context, we evolved in a context in which people argued with one another about who deserved what, about who had been fair and who hadn't been, about who deserved, had made, done the most important part of the, the hunting and deserved more food, about who had, had unfairly stolen whose mate, whatever. The, the premise the idea that we have a hereditary infrastructure for engaging in moral argument is that our species has been doing it a long time, and who won the arguments has had implications for who got their genes into the next generation most effectively, okay? So, I would say these four things are bound by having originated in that context. I would say that. But, um... Beyond that it gets to be a kind of a complicated uh story and do you want to try to can you say more about
1: what evolutionary or what adaptive so, uh solution one of these biases would have provided like say confirmation well, bias
0: Yeah I mean if if you get if you accept the fact if you accept the premise that people argued over things uh, and, uh, argued over who owed who what, um, like, wait, I've done three favors for you, and you've only, you know, and, and, and so you owe me, like, remember when I did this for you, and, and so on, you know, or argue about, um, uh, wait, I've gone out on the last seven hunts, you know, I've been a real trooper, I brought food back to the whole, you know, the whole community, uh, I deserve some sex or something. I don't know. I don't know what the argument would be. But I was, no, was going to
1: des- let you. I was let I, you say. I, that I deserve
0: one. more of the food or something. No, I don't think that you would make the argument uh, quite explicitly. It would be. I don't think that would be part of the deal. You would explicitly argue that you deserve sex. But, um, but I deserve something. Um, or you just want to toot your own horn because you know that impresses people and they are going to treat you with more respect and defer to you and so on. Whatever. Um. Then it's obvious as something like confirmation bias, you know, which is just a tendency to yes, always remember the things I've done for other people. But I don't have to remember the things that they've done for me because I, I it is in my interest to be convinced myself that I've done a disproportionate amount of good stuff so that I can argue that convincingly, right?
1: I'm having that, flashbacks to numerous roommates I've had where we've gotten into
0: arguments. About, and it was always their fault, right? You well, were- always, I
1: always, I always took out the trash every week.
0: I always had Exactly. The and they didn't day. remember that. Imagine that. Right. Uh, just your bad luck that you ran into several roommates in a row who, uh, didn't have an objective view of reality, whereas you did. Um so, that, that's an ex, an example, uh, of, uh, um, now, attribution error. Well, actually, is, stay with that for a second. Yeah, because, yeah. Because, it, because it, the, I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how
1: you know a, a a trait or a bias that's that's adaptive in one environment at one time,
0: yeah,
1: is becomes maladaptive in the current environment, and and so because it, the, the confirmation bias that was born out of that kind of dynamic you just described, it will lead people to have all sorts of forms of manifestations of cognitive bias in the modern environment that, that are very different from that sure. kind of, that kind of early dynamic. Right. So, yeah. how would it
0: look? so it's like now it's like, um, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I mean, it, it's true that on the one hand, this impulse was not kind of engineered by natural selection to play out on social media in the context of American politics this is a radically new environment. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, if you look at the way people deploy it, like on social media, like the resistance remembers every stupid thing Trump said and no stupid things that whoever their hero is said, um, or vice versa, you know, the other side does the equivalent. Um, they do deploy that to, uh, sometimes elevate their own social status within their group. Uh, and, 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 you know, you can imagine things having sometimes played out that way in the, uh, environment of our evolution. But at the same time, I mean. But don't you think one of the pernicious things about confirmation bias
1: is that it, 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 it actually filters the data that come into the, into one's perception, so things that yeah. are, are that co- create dis, dis cognitive dissonance get get kind of filtered out, and those that kind of re- affirm one's pre existing views get selected for. That's, get, the way, get that's the way that's the way
0: it works. You you notice and embrace even uncritically information that confirms your story, whether your story is your the political ideology you've embraced, you know the story of your political tribe, or your story that. You know, you're you, you do a lot for the world and people should be grateful. Um, whatever your story. Um, yeah, that that is confirmation bias. And you are l- less inclined to notice, less inclined to embrace, more inclined to interrogate critically information that is at odds with your story. You say more inclined or less inclined? Well, more inclined to critically evaluate it. Right. You're, you're less inclined to to embrace it to notice it to embrace it but if you notice it you're more inclined to go wait a second I'd like to see a source for that I'd like to see and, and and just pay attention to the way you behave on social media we all do this like you know you see some somebody report that Trump was had his pants on backwards and it's just like you almost have to restrain yourself from retweeting it's so appealing and it turned out he didn't but uh but but if you're a Trump supporter and you see that, you're like, ah, you sure this photo isn't doctored? I want to look into the provenance of this photo, which turned out to be in order uh, hmm. to investigate. Because in that case, the story was not true. They are. Did you come across that meme, by the way, that Trump was? No. I if mean, not, you were, up- you were checked out for a whole day. If you didn't come across <laughs> the picture that seemed to show that Donald Trump had delivered a whole speech with his pants on backwards... You missed out on an important part of American history. This was really fun. I have checked out
1: more than I,
0: I think I've come to realize. No excuse for that short of being on a retreat, I'll
1: tell you. I think I'm more on a permanent retreat. But but, but the one thing I had a question of since our last chat was this, this idea of something being adaptive at, in, an, in the evolutionary context and then being, would you say, maladaptive in the current uh, environment that we live in?
0: Well, you have to ask what you mean by adaptive. I mean, adaptive in the biological sense just means uh, conducive to genetic proliferation. There are tons of things that are no longer adaptive in that sense because, for example, a lot of people work feverishly for social status, but then don't convert that into reproductive success. They, they, they may even have a lot of sex, but use contraception. And so in strict biological terms, that's no longer, quote, adaptive. Now, a separate question is psychologically adaptive, like is it psychologically good for you? Uh even in the environment of a revolution, like if you imagine something like a hunter-gather environment, uh psychologically adaptive and biologically adaptive were not necessarily the same thing. You, you know, you could be made very unhappy doing things that might get your genes into the next generation. Uh
1: but to, but to laser in on these on these existential psychological threats, like particularly the cognitive biases, would you say they were psychologically adaptive or and or biologically
0: adaptive? I'd say a lot of them, you, you move them to a modern environment and a lot of them are less adaptive in both senses than they may have been
1: in and the that, past. So, so this is my question. Is there a word for that?
0: Well, there is, is a, a field called mismatch, environmental mismatch is a word. I wrote a, uh, actually a cover story for Time Magazine in the 1990s that got me in a little bit of trouble, um 'cause cause the Unabomber had just been, I think, caught or is, no, maybe his manifesto had just come out. And it was, a, it was a screed against technology. And, uh, by the way this is a little bit related maybe to the explain excuse dichotomy what I got in trouble for uh is in some corners um I I I just noticed that you know a big part of his deal was he just hated what technology had done to the world and uh and I think he even explicitly said it's not the way we're designed to be it's not natural and it's messing us up and 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 by way of making the point that actually a lot of us feel that way, I started the the first sentence in the piece was "There's a little bit of the Unabomber in all of us," and I can already see the backlash. That, that wasn't the worst part. I mean, the the worst. I, I mean, anyway, people got the idea. Like I quoted him a few times. It was just kind of a journalistic gimmick. He was what was timely, and and uh and I used it as a device. And I got it. You know, there's one of his victims who, like, uh, has said extremely unkind things about me. A well-known uh, computer scientist at Yale who I think had his hand blown off by a Unabomber bomb or something. Anyway, who, who apparently doesn't like me because of this piece. But I wasn't, I wasn't justifying. I was explaining what motivated him, and I was even saying his per- the perception of the world he had that motivated him was itself an accurate perception. I wasn't saying he was justified in sending people bombs. And this is kind of what I mean. It's is is like anyway, you you, you see the point, but anyway, I went on to describe this part of evolutionary psychology called mismatch theory. And, and and an example of that is that like yes, sadness is natural. It served a function in the environmental revolution. Yes, anxiety is natural, but the modern environment lets sadness, uh, sometimes fester into unipolar depression. You don't tend to find unipolar depression in actual hunter-gatherer societies. You may, you may find bipolar, which seems to have a genetic basis in some cases for reasons that well, people can argue about, but unipolar depression that isn't part of a manic depression, uh, polarity is, is really uncommon with people living in something more like the environment we resigned for. Uh, and so the theory is that what you see in the modern environment with people get depressed in that sense is, you know, they're sad and then they're whatever they are, they're living alone, which isn't natural. They're this, they're that. And these unnatural circumstances kind of uh, divert the sadness into depression. And same same with anxiety. A little anxiety is natural, but, but getting to a point where it's d- just ruling your life is not, and, and maybe it's features of the modern environment that are doing that. So that's called mismatch theory when, when you trace certain parts of human unhappiness to a mismatch, uh, between our, our quote, natural environment and our current environment. Although again, we weren't designed by evolution to be consistently happy even in a natural environment we just weren't designed to go crazy you right that that would be maladaptive even in the biological sense and you
1: use the phrase
0: that the like living alone was not a natural environment um right like in like, in isolation like going to bed every you know you, you know in a modern environment you can spend days on end if you want in an apart your own apartment uh without talking to anyone uh well, you could,
1: but you could make the case that that's just that's that's the way the cultural evolution has gone. That it's it's led to these kinds of design uh, features yeah. of, of of material culture, so that someone could do that. Right. And 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 I would guess that, and I think this is a thread in what and a lot of things you're describing that there's this there's a very slow lag between the biological ad, uh, evolution and the, the technological cultural evolution riding on top of that, right? So um, and, and,
0: yeah, yeah. There and, well, I mean and,
1: and, and that's part of the, the, the kind of if you want to call it the, the, the evolutionary whiplash where you you have these traits now that, that that are that are becoming existential
0: threats. Right. There is that and then there is I, I may have uh not followed you totally, but one thing there is also is just um you know, cultural change, when it changes the environment in a challenging way, we can catch up and adapt, okay? For example, uh, when urbanization hit in a big way in the late 19th, early 20th century, lots of people moving from farms to uh, uh, cities, you know, that left people in a It's a weird environment. They weren't used to it. It's not necessarily natural. They no longer had the stabilizing force of family. Novels were written about this, like Sister Carrie by uh, Theodore Dreiser. Uh, But institutions did eventually develop. For example, the, the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, was targeted at these guys who who suddenly were at loose ends in a city and could get into trouble and, and blah, blah, blah. And these Christians wanted to help them not get into trouble. Um, but, but as technology changes things faster and faster, social media is a good example. It just shows up. And, uh, you know, people about the age of my daughters are just suddenly, it shows up about the time they hit adolescence. And it's a totally bizarre thing. It's totally unnatural you know, and, and, and a so concern. So there's
1: something, there's something about the, the modern environment that, that within which these, these old evolutionary traits get planted that suddenly becomes this, this, this pathological slash inflamed slash socially carcinogenic condition.
0: Yeah. Um, you, I you- mean, the, the, uh, and uh you know because because it's not our natural environment it takes some adjustment the adjustment may be possible but it seems like the faster the environment changes as the, as the pace of technological evolution speeds up the harder it's going to be to adapt it takes a while because you first of all you have to develop the social pathology and realize there are people responding to like you know Facebook is unhealthy for a number of, for say the self-esteem of high school kids or makes them more anxious. You have to see that that's happening and then, you know, set in motion forces to do something about it. Now, maybe those two can, that cycle can happen faster than it used to partly by virtue of technology, but it is, it is, it is a challenge. Yeah. You
1: know, this is, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I just want to get it out because it keeps coming up. I forget to mention it. Um, when we've talked about social media and the the, the ills of communication on, on those platforms and and their tendency to proliferate uh, tribalistic conflict. Um, One thing that I remember hearing from a woman that I, I trained in studying acupuncture. She was a Japanese acupuncturist and she had, she has a really interesting system of acupuncture uh, that is actually taught at Harvard university med school. Um, But she spoke, About how just staring at the small, the size of the small screen, like, and and this is she had an evolutionary argument here, but the staring at the small screen, she felt overactivated the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight Hmm. aspect of the autonomic nervous system, which would, if that's done chronically, uh, that will put someone into a more reactive tendency, or you know, have a baseline default. inner chemistry of, of reactivity because of that stim- chronic stimulation, whereas she she would say that we evolved, and I think you might agree, that we evolved to, to survey vast uh, horizons over the plane, and when there was a small thing that we had to focus in on that, that's what activated the, the, uh, the sympathetic nervous system of, uh, of the autonomic nervous system. So it's just this chronic staring even at small things, and then you put on put in everything else we've talked about in terms of the content on that small screen, which is also inflammatory it's sort of like stacked on the neurobiology and then the the cognitive biases that we're, you're talking about that you get this kind of layered house of cards or a big problem
0: yeah, and we don't really i mean i I, I don't know about that particular idea, but that's the point. The, 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 the environment, our environment is changing in so many ways that we don't understand the consequences of, you know. And, and you know, some of them become apparent. Like, one thing the pandemic has done is make people uh, aware of some of the dynamics of a meeting that aren't captured on, on a Zoom meeting, right? Like, making eye contact with someone to... It, Silently convey your reaction to something someone else is saying. For example, There's just all these things that uh, well, that don't happen. Uh,
1: another friend said that they were part of some seminar where they were talking about the the, the 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 excessive stress that Zoom meetings were causing because of the need to look to constantly look and monitor at people's eyes.
0: Yeah, and,
1: and that that was kind of a, a something that would tr- trigger or signal threat. Having I mean, to yeah. look at someone's
0: eyes. Uh, so, like I mean, so anyway, the, the, uh, yeah, mismatch theory is the term for, uh, for this phenomenon where, uh, human psychopathologies in particular or just extreme forms of unhappiness are a product of differences between the environment we're living in and the environment natural selection engineered us for. And we have not yet come up with a satisfactory adjustment to the tension created. And there's all kinds of adjustments. You know, meditation is an adjustment. Uh, uh, pharmaceuticals are an, you know, SSRIs are an adjustment. Um, and uh, but it's a it's a scramble. So. Anyway, I mean, ha- I, so we got here via, uh, existential psychological threats. Is that true? And, somehow? Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and we were starting out with the, we could probably come back to the explain, excuse conflation. Cause this is, this is a, yeah. this is a per- pernicious example of it, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, it just happens all the, uh, I mean, it, well, you know, the flip side of these existential psychological threats, is to some extent. I mean, you should also list like strengths we want to cultivate, right? This is a very positive psychology kind of idea, you know. And positive psychology has gotten criticized for some things, I'm sure, in some cases justifiably. But there is, in part, one thing it it, it it has the idea that it's as important to 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 build strengths to to to, to see yourself as building strengths as it is to see yourself as. Solving, solving, you know, addressing your deficiencies, you know, um, it's just kind of think positive. You're building these strengths that that help you address the deficiencies. And I would say, cognitive empathy is a strength that needs to be built. Cognitive empathy being the ability to look at things from the perspective of other people. And one one thing the explain excuse conflation does is undermine cognitive empathy. Because if, if you say, well, I think the way this terrorist is looking at the world is, or I think the reason Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine is, I you know, and I, I just think the, the end of those sentences is inherently worth trying to flesh out. I just think understanding why people do things you don't like is a good idea. But But when you start sentences like that and try to exercise the cognitive empathy – you are going to get accused uh, by people who don't want to hear the answer of uh, of trying to uh, justify their behavior, which, which you're not necessarily trying to do. And so, um, you know, in my ultimate kind of Dharma Bob textbook or whatever, I guess I would have there, – there would be this thing about the cultivation of strengths. That it that in in a loose way corresponds, not in a one to one basis, but bears some relationship to the list of existential psychological threats. And would
1: I mean I assume in the list of strengths there would be some way to better navigate when you find your better navigate the dynamic when you find yourself in the crosshairs of being accused of justifying when you're trying to explain. Because I mean, because one of the things you pointed out is that this 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 tendency in our culture for that this to occur is it, it will inhibit people making good effort, good good faith efforts to to understand the complexity of situation because they could get shouted down mm-hmm. for being a fascist or whatever.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd work on the, at the on the problem at both ends. I, I mean, on the one hand, if you are trying to explain why people who did bad things did them, it it can help kind of soften up your audience a little to start out by denouncing the people. You know, it's like Bashar Assad is a brutal dictator, but I still think it's useful to understand why he, whatever he did. I, that can be an effective rhetorical strategy. I think if you carry it too far, you're, you're kind of, uh, reinforcing the, the, the overall kind of, uh, Superstructure that is oppressing you in a sense. I mean, in other words, in an ideal world, you just shouldn't have to denounce everyone whose behavior you want to explain. I don't know. It's like, anyway, the, the, the to work at the problem on the other end, um, I, I think, you know, uh, I, I was uh, talking about this on, on, a, on a podcast the other day. Um, it was the 80,000 hours podcast and and I actually the conversation is on my podcast feed too. Um, the uh, but I was saying we need to stigmatize phrases like apologist like one way the excuse explain uh, explain excuse conflation uh, you know brings its force to bear on you is for people to say, oh, you're a Putin apologist. you're an Assad apologist and that just shouldn't you're, be considered cool it should be considered or, uncool or
1: you're you're a white supremacist or you're well
0: i mean that's a little different from uh i mean there are white supremacists and and i suppose and look sure. there are putin apologists but what i mean is uh what i mean is well well what you're saying you're talking about ad hominem attacks in general yeah. and and i'm not i'm not getting quite that broad yet i i'm uh i'm I'm saying the specific term apologist because it is so often leveled in an attempt to shut down cognitive empathy, in an attempt to stop people from explaining why people did things, that it should just be considered uncool because it it almost always is. It usually is a way of evading honest assessment. It's a way, it's a sign that you fear... Um, Honest assessment and, and we should treat it as such. You know, we should, it should just be like, you know, this actually in a way is a segue to that question, um, that we had said we might address, uh, about how you, how you mobilize people to solve problems on social media. Um, yeah, this, maybe just before we go, go
1: there though, um, cause something I've been th- trying to think through is that, with the person that's levying the apologist charge. So the person that's calling you an apologist for trying to explain something, what you, I think you might say that the the primary biases that are kind of shaping their view that you're just an apologist are both attribution error and and confirmation bias so far. So good. Well, there could be others too, but I I
0: actually think the specific, uh, Explain, excuse, conflation. It has a more complicated, uh, kind of evolutionary origin. That, that's my suspicion. I don't think we want to get off on this because it, it's not at all well fleshed out in the literature. My own ideas are kind of inchoate, but I would, uh, I would, I would say it has a kind of relationship to both of those things. Um, but it's not like it just consists of them something or or something in a way it's, uh, it's to some extent kind of sui generis. But anyway,
1: would you say though, that the person who's, who's charging you with being an apologist is they're not aware of the conflation that they're, they're the the conflation hole that they're in. They're not aware that they're uh, conflating explanation, explanation and, and, and excuse or justification.
0: I I think often there's not uh, awareness that that's the move being made right. It's it's just – that's why I think it's kind of in the genes. It it, it is such a subtle but strong intuition we have that when someone – and I think we all have it. We all can feel it, that when someone starts explaining why someone bad did something considered bad, that they aim to excuse it. I mean, it usually is the fact – first of all, that that's what they're doing. I mean, in common conversation, usually it's the defenders of people, the friends of people, the allies of people who come up with the reasons. And see, this takes us to attribution error right away, right? Like, that's what attribution error says, that when somebody does something bad, it's their friends who will be able to come up with circumstantial reasons they did it, reasons other than, oh, it's a bad person. Whereas their enemies will be blind to circumstantial reasons and just want to say, oh, that person's bad. And they don't want to hear these explanations. Uh, but, 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 but I think the reason they don't want to hear them is in part because there, are, there is this intuition, um, that to be able to come up with plausible circumstantial explanations is to exonerate someone. Right. And we've,
1: I think we've tiptoed around this in the past that when we talked about mindfulness of feelings, for example, like it, it it's the reason why I think you, you describe that as difficult is because that intuitive sense is so strongly rooted that we tend to look right past it and not even notice or perceive the intuition or the in, intuitive impulse. So if someone's calling you an apologist, they're not aware that they're responding to this intuitive sense. It's just it's, it's they see it as fact.
0: Right. They're not they're not aware that there's a, a logical leap being made. Right. And and so the question that I would ask, and
1: want you to try to think through or explore is how if you're in, if you're in dialogue with someone like that, how do you how do you uh, diplomatically point out the the error or the, the logical leap or the um, kind of the blind spot at play? Because I think that's what's going on, in, in yeah. this whole issue of cognitive biases—like they, they are sort of perceptual blind spots—that that we, we they, they shape the way we see, so we don't even question the way we're seeing.
0: Well, I always start when that happens with "listen, asshole." No, I don't. That doesn't <laughs> work. Um, I, I I don't. The only two approaches I know are to. And increasingly I do this first one is to preface the thing with look, I'm just trying to get clear sometimes it's a matter of just clarifying what exactly is happening. Even that will get you in trouble. Uh like I had a guest on who was talking about what's happening to the Uyghurs. Um and and you really you really should clarify up front that there's definitely horrible stuff happening. Their human rights are being violated, but you still think it's worth finding out whether, uh, something worthy of the term genocide is happening. And so this was a guy who knew a certain amount about the question of whether, um, uh, you know, women, you know, in what sense women were being, uh, coercively sterilized and so on. So we talked about that. You have to preface that with, you know, it's just good practice to preface that with what is the truth, which is that you, you, you know, uh, you, you're, you're, you're not saying horrible things aren't happening, and so on. Now, now, and I would say the same thing applies when you're explaining. Well, there were other parts of that conversation where he was explaining, like why the government is doing this. Okay, what like fears led the government to be repressive in the various ways of being repressive toward the the Uyghurs? That's a perfect example where you need to emphasize we're not justifying it. We're not saying the government is right to do it. We just think it's useful to understand what the perceptions they have that led them to do this are. And, and, and so I think one thing you do is you just have to keep saying that. that, that I mean, there may be a better technique, but I increasingly try to say in advance, you know, I'm not defending this, blah, blah, blah. I just want to say, if I forget to do that and somebody says, oh, you're defending them, you just try to clarify, uh, you know, I, all I want to do is have a clear understanding of why something bad happened. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's always in principle a good thing to have a better understanding of why bad things happen. And, um, I don't, I don't have a better solution than that.
1: Wasn't there a part two? I thought you said there are two things. Did I miss the second?
0: I just meant you can do it preemptively or after the fact. You can say, oh. You know, before you even go on your spiel, you can clarify your aims or you can wait until they accuse you of being an apologist. Or usually you have to do both because because the spiel doesn't get you off the hook. You, you do the preemptive thing uh, and then you have to tell them again.
1: Probably lace it throughout.
0: Yeah. And again, you know, one thing people do is, you know... I, I'm bad at this because I just don't like to emote. You know, I just, I just, there's something that's in, in my nature, I'm just not wild about spending a lot of time lamenting things that I do think are bad. Especially when I feel like I'm like catering to someone or something, you know, I'm just not, so I'm you not the like best there's, person.
1: There's, there's something about emotive relationship relation emotive and Catering?
0: Well, I'm saying I'm especially averse to emoting when I think the, the emoting is catering to someone's demands. Like, you know, like, like I do feel horrible about the Uyghurs, but if I know that you, you are kind of demanding that I say that, I'm less inclined to say it, if that makes sense. <laughs> Cause it just feels like, yeah, whatever. That's just, uh, but, um, so I, so I, I don't, a,
1: yeah. I had a thought that I'm, I'm trying to recapture. Um, where, where do you think you'd want to go
0: next? Well, I do think I, I, I want to um, at some point get to this, uh, this, there's a commenter on the newsletter. It's a non-zero newsletter. Oh, that, that's
1: what it was. But, you know, the, the the kind of exercise you just described, you know, being able to get into that this, this uh, discussion around explaining and reiterating that you're just trying to explain, and understand. How is that, that? This is the thing you, you you're, you're counseling ways to be kind of better, more mindful on social media. But I just don't know how that 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 dialogue would ever transpire
0: in that context. Well, you could say those things in that context. I mean. Uh, you know, the, 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 the the invention of the Twitter thread. I don't know if it was always technically possible, but it only, it was only a few years ago that people started using threads to, to really do long flowing arguments on, on Twitter. Oh, right, right. right. It, It does, even Twitter does, and Facebook, you can do much longer posts to begin with, but it, it, it gives you the space to clarify your intentions. And preemptively dispel, uh, the idea that you're, uh, excusing people when you're not. Um, so, so, so I, it's not impossible, so- but, 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 I think that the question this guy, the, the so the, this commenter whose name is Mutter, Mutter Fodder. <laughs> I, I doubt. <laughs> oh, I get it. He spelled, it's M-U-T-T-E-R, F-O-D-D-E-R. I suppose that's like mother, father. There was a, uh, or it's a just song? say, a
1: ten, I think it's something else, if you say it ten times fast.
0: I'm missing that. It should it should we take this offline? Yeah, maybe we can take it Matterful. offline. Mm, I don't know. There was a, uh, before you were <laughs> born, there was a, a comic song by Alan Sherman that started off, Hello, Mudder. Hello, Fodder. Here I am at Camp Granada. Well, anyway. and you say you can't sing? <laughs> yeah, right. You wouldn't know it, would you? You would not know that. <laughs> hey, you know, by the way, somebody told me that you, you who knew you in, uh I don't want to use the term prep school, but knew you in your prep school, uh said you were a great jazz musician. That was, yeah, I was able to kind of convince people of that at one point. It was funny. It so happened that in my inbox at one point, your name and his name were like – your emails were right next to each other. He, and his was have, an email telling me that he knew you.
1: That's funny. I have a feeling I think I know who it is. Did you, did you once work with him at the New Republic? That is air, true. Cross, that is cross, true. Cross,
0: uh, uh, I yeah, mean I, we were – I don't think we were there at the same time. But yes, he worked at the New Republic. Um. So uh the – where were we? Anyway, well, to this, okay. To so this wait, motherfucker. Let me let me let me let me let me get this because yeah, I keep promising this. So he was responding to a piece where I did a deep dive into this uh exchange on Twitter involving Michael McFaul, who, for reasons I still don't understand, was ambassador to Russia under President Obama. He's just. He's just really not cut out to be a diplomat. He is so bad at cognitive empathy. Sorry folks hate to hate to go off on this guy, but I just don't get it and He got into what I thought was need, a needlessly antagonistic exchange with a Chinese journalist who granted is himself a little bit of a flamethrower on on Twitter but anyway, um, I was kind of a chastising uh, McFall and mutter fodder wrote. Uh, Bob, you see the boxing ring that is social media, yet I gather you still believe that forum is salvageable when its dynamics inherently promote antagonism rather than rapport. I think I had said in the piece how common it is that, that, you know, McFall gets positive feedback for, you know, facing off against this guy and, you know, uh, so that's I think what he has in mind when he writes that. Then he, then he writes, I know on the Dharma of Bob podcast, that's us. You hinted that maybe the tide could be turned by courageously expressing cognitive empathy there, meaning on social media. But what's the actual plan now? I took that to mean: Is this scalable? Uh, I mean, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear how I thought how I thought cognitive empathy could have been deployed in this case. Uh, McFall had not tried hard to understand. He should have seen the Chinese journalist was misunderstanding him. It shouldn't have been hard for him to surmise what the probable nature of the misunderstanding was and to just clarify what he meant in a way that would have diffused the antagonism. But instead, he just goes off. Um, so I think Mutter Fodder knows that I... That I that I I I have uh, a plan by which you know Michael McFaul could if he wanted to use more cognitive empathy, and any one person could. So I think the question must be like, okay, but how do we get enough people to do this for it to make a difference? I don't know. Maybe you read it differently, but that was what I I think. I
1: think so. When you say how to get this to scale, how do you get cognitive empathy to be a practice?
0: Yeah, and and again, it's maybe to some extent the question is how do you how do you get it to be considered cool.
1: You know, yeah. like how do
0: you how do you get uh using the term apologist to be considered uncool? And how do you consider you know, these are related. Um right. and I'm this gets to what we were something we were saying before we started taping, which is that you are a little more in the pedagog in some sense more in the pedagogy business than i am now i am in the expository writing business i you know the the business of explaining things through writing but you are more in the you know pedagogy in the sense of motivation maybe business would you say that i what did you mean you i, I you know you by virtue of being a yoga teacher meditation teacher you're saying there's well, something no, I, you do that i don't do
1: well, I, well, I, one of the, in that space, I'm a trainer. I teach teachers and I I teach, I teach these, I some of these practices. So I'm, and it's all self-developed. I mean, I'm, I'm coming up with my own curriculum in a way and my own mm-hmm. uh, talking points around it. So I have, I'm, I'm just thinking about how these things get taught. And, and so I, I, I've been imagining in, in a way, and I think I said this in an email, I think, in some regards, the kind of uh, awareness and mindfulness that you're tr- talking about, related to being aware of feelings and the body, uh, this is a, this is a kind of a, a curriculum that's ready to be injected into yoga training in a way. I think, and then, and that's sort of the I could see it as a Trojan horse, where yoga being the Trojan horse, where it's it's already established as a very popular thing worldwide, and and if you make this compelling case, because I mean, yogis, uh, yoga practitioners. Always are you know, sort of interested in trying to see how their personal practice is is contributing to a, a betterment of the world and and that's often kind of i think ridiculed by by cynical folks or skeptical folks but uh, th- there is that interest and hmm. and if there was some way of, of coming up with a kind of not just for yoga but just a curriculum there, I mean there, I would think there needs to be some sort of educational piece around. How does someone develop the skill sets, both of perception and understanding, so that they are more immune to the pernicious influence of these biases?
0: You know, this is something I want to throw out just before I forget it. Like in loving kindness meditation, you think about the spectrum of people ranging from yourself to like your worst enemy or something, and you try to wish them well, basically. What if uh, you had people in a medis- meditative state? Think well, actually, of- can,
1: I, can I interrupt that for a second? Because on the surface, that can seem it doesn't really. I, I don't. I think some people might be confused about why that's a benefit. But I think it re- that exercise relates to the cognitive empathy. Like under, it, under, there's an undergirding in that exercise that relates to cognitive empathy, which builds on the premise that every person that you're sending the loving kindness to. Seeks safety, happiness, peace for themselves, yeah. even yeah. if they're, even if their strategies for securing those things are problematic for, for the collective sake.
0: Right. I think that's true. I mean, I hadn't thought of that, but I think it's true. But what I was thinking was, um, what if you said explicitly, I don't mean necessarily it's part of loving kindness meditation, but at some point in some meditative instruction, so think of your worst enemy and just try to imagine something they've done that you didn't approve of and, and and try to imagine why from their point of view it made sense or why what was motivating them and ask yourself if you if you've ever been motivated by anything like that i mean you know that that kind of because i do think people will be more successful at this when they're in a state of kind of meditative calm and in fact it has happened to me at least once that I remember, just spontaneously on a meditation retreat. I thought about the person who was just about my worst enemy in a very... Uh, uh, I wrote about this a little in my book. I did not name the person there and will not name the person here. But the, um, but thought about... Um, it was just suddenly so easy to imagine him on the playground as an adolescent being this gangly, like, unathletic... Person, and maybe this is the wrong theory, but like, not, not realizing social status via one common way that adolescent males try to reach it, you know? And, and ultimately finding a way that he, that he wound up very high status and it just suddenly made sense. And the way, and the way he was that I didn't like was just part of this Adaptive mechanism. And we and we all have this. We all try to find a way to win the esteem of our fellow human beings. We all try to find an arena in which we're thought highly of. He had found one. It involved being an asshole. Sorry, I shouldn't put it that way. It involved uh, doing things that rubbed me the wrong way. Um, it, it just... I could just see a human developing this way. And it's like, what are you going to do? I mean... Yeah, we're born. He was responding to the same imperatives we all respond to in an environment different from the environment I, I was myself. I, I had found myself in.
1: So, when you were going through that exercise and that that kind of imaginative exploration of this guy's history, you mentioned you were in a meditative state of calm. But I would ask did you have did you notice any kind of somatic uh, expression of that of that process? Because this, I think, because I've gone through this similar thing in, in meditation. Not necessarily trying to explore why the the person is wired the way they're wired, but more just being sitting there in in, in on the cushion on our, in a our retreat hall and being visited by the the quote unquote uh you know the enemy or or the the, the person you have a really charged problematic situation with and. There's there's a tremendous flood of, of physiological uh, sensations that come through, and I think that this is like learning to ride that wave, just to to see it come through and to you see. You mean that, the it, normal
0: the, flood of like disliking antagonism?
1: Yeah, but but I'm talking about the feeling in the body of like the heart rate, the right. constricted throat, I and mean, you can you like, and that's what's kind of interesting on the on, on a retreat or in a meditation session when it occurs, is that you're you're. You're essentially inured from, if that's the right word, if you're, 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 you're walled off or in a bubble from any actual trigger or stimulus of the situation. So it's all created in your own mind. And yet it, it can uh, flood through the body with, with this whole pattern of very difficult sensations, which you might not normally even attend to because off the cushion, those sensations are going to drive you to all sort, all variety of action. But to see that, and, and this is where I, one of the things about the meditation I think is relevant to what you're talking about is that by going through that process, actually sitting through the difficulty of those sensations, you're you're essentially giving yourself a simulated training to recognize those situations when you're off the cushion. So you 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 develop awarewithal of being present to them yeah. and, and, and also non-reactive in a certain sense. Yeah. And so so I mean, when those same 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 impulses come up. You're able to catch them. It's a it's a pattern. No, I I
0: think that's right. I mean, I think actually in this case, this is like day five of a meditation retreat. I'm not even sure i I went through the process of feeling the normal antagonistic feelings toward this guy. I was like a, you know, I was like a love blob by this time. But um, but 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 there is a there's another kind of relationship between. But I I think you're right that that's in a dated it in real life. Like now, if I'm sitting down on a cushion and I think of this person, the first feelings will be antagonistic, and and you're right. Observing them is a is a is a, is a skill to develop, and a habit to get in. Um, the there's one other thing about loving kindness meditation, which is that when we are feeling positively toward people, it is easier, I think, to exercise the cognitive empathy. And and it gets back again. This is in a way a byproduct of attribution error, which says if if you with your friends and allies, you'll have an easier time understanding the forces that made them do bad things, forces other than just oh they're bad people. Right. Um. So, so you you it sounds like you would like to see a, an updated form of
1: loving kindness practice that we.
0: I'm not sure. That, you know, I can imagine a variant of loving kindness practice.
1: Can, can, can we change the name? Can we change the name of it to begin with? Because we would both
0: be in favor of that, probably. I think something you and I share, in addition to
1: being meditation <laughs> enthusiasts, is: uh, Have you ever skipped the loving kindness meditation, Richard? Yeah, me Yeah, I. I'm, I'm, me my, too. Uh,
0: yeah, I uh, it just it just doesn't work. I mean, maybe it's my fault, but it, but it has not tended to work for me. You know, whereas again, ironically, just. Regular meditation, like uh, I just recounted a case where, just in the course of meditation retreat, from getting deeper and deeper into mindfulness, uh, I was able to view someone much more sympathetically who who I generally consider a you know an enemy. Um, and uh, so but and yet the explicit attempt, you know, to do the loving kindness thing tends not to work uh, for me. And, and you know, look, I've talked to, uh, Sharon Salzberg about this. She is the, uh, maybe the person most closely associated in, in the, uh, you know. She's the she's the, matriarch she's the reigning matriarch of She's the reigning matriarch of Bloomington. And she knows, like, it works for some people, it doesn't work for others. She's fine, you know. She's not, she's not insecure about it. Uh. Well, we but, can, we
1: can maybe explore it at a later time. I don't know if you want to get to know the why I think i have, I have an idea why the 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 desired outcome of loving kindness practice might be more readily uh, achieved in, in more of an awareness based practice for someone like you and me um but we can we can shell that
0: okay. for a while yeah we've been talking for uh i guess well well over an hour uh do you want to slide a little into you had wanted to talk a little about myth? yeah i mean th-
1: th- i mean i don't have much to say other than um I, as i said over an email I was looking at uh, some lectures by joseph Cam- from joseph campbell uh in a series called mythos and in one of the early lectures he said something to the effect that a myth has four four parts there's uh, and four functions there's a there's a cosmological sociological pedagogical and and uh mystical that's the last i say mythical but mystical dimension and um his his view is that if a society doesn't doesn't have an organizing myth a a modernized updated myth that it it goes into dissolution Mm -hmm. and 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 he was he emphasized and underlined the point that if you only have the first three if you have cosmology sociology and and pedagogy you only have those you don't have a myth. You need the mystical uh, experience of transcendence or, or you could say unity consciousness that, that ties it together and prevents the first three from just being ideology. And so, hmm. there's, and, and I don't fully understand. I, I haven't really thought through why the first three wouldn't be um, effective enough on their own. Um, I have sort of rudimentary thoughts to that idea, but um, I think it's something to explore. It's like we haven't really got into this. What, if, if there's other folks that, are, as I said, that that, um, that see tr- the, the experience of transcendence, whether it's through mystical union and in in sp- spiritual tr- path work, or through psychedelic work, or through ecstatic, say dance or sort of collective uh, ecstatic experiences, that there's something non-trivial and important about that experience to the cohesiveness of a, of a society
0: well uh, so I mean first of all you're saying like you think my worldview the Dharma of Bob or whatever when you say it has the cosmology and sociology pretty much um, well, it's pretty clear. By cosmology, you mean, um, and here we'll have to speak just kind of telegraphically, I guess. I, I don't. We, we can't go into all of these things enough to make them because clear. By to- cosmology,
1: I just mean you're you're you you're describing our species in relationship to the story of the cosmos. So you you, you know, oh, are yeah. talking. You've talked about evolution, evolution, and 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 then the logos.
0: And and how with the directionality of all of the, that. The possibility yeah. that evolution is an expression of the logos and so on. And then by sociology, do you mean partly psychology? Like does that include all the does that yeah, include could, the, the, the the diagnosis and the prescription part or what? Uh yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it definitely does. The, the, the diagnosis of, of of where this can go wrong or how this is going wrong.
0: So that that that's the uh, the diagnostic and prescriptive part of the apocalypse aversion project, kind of. Yes. Okay. Yep. And and so then the the things you think are less fleshed out. I mean, look, first of all, uh, I you're the you're you're the one uh saying that I should uh. Try to reach mythic status, I guess, (laughs) and um, flesh out the four uh, cornerstones. Uh, I mean,
1: just because of the urgency through which you are.
0: I do. I do claim to think it's. Yes, I do think it's important.
1: I and I agree agree with you. I mean, I would say the reason I teach meditation is because I believe in the power of the practice to transform consciousness. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm like a, a shining example of it, but I just I, I I have had enough taste of it to know that it it it, it does deliver a very different like, shift or, or change in, in how you see yourself in the world.
0: So if the other two cornerstones are pedagogy and mysticism, the pedagogy would include the kinds of things we just discussed, like oh, you could introduce into a meditative practice the exercise of cognitive empathy or something
1: that 's one one way one one avenue, um, I think I mentioned this in an email to you a while back. the idea of cognitive bias training period i mean if if these bias I, I can already imagine if it 's not happening i 'm surprised it 's not happening but there 's got to be a corporate incentive to to mitigate the influence of these biases on people 's ability to to be efficient and productive, for example, so you, and you can make a case that in any field these biases are going to make you you know, a less optimal agent. And, and so there, there, there could be a whole uh, sort of multi-leveled uh, expression of an educational uh, curriculum around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, so just like you're saying, I, I think this may be a part of what you're getting at with the, with the book uh, when you say that we, with the, these phrases of, of, of condemning the apologist or the use of, a, of the term apologist and getting people thinking more in terms of existential psychological threats. There needs to be a, like a, an, an apocalyptic aversion project lexicon in, in a way, not to get, again, which <laughs> every time I say something like that, I feel like, am I getting Orwellian here? Is this, is this becoming kind of this, this, this,
0: this dark uh, form no, of social I mean, control? I, I, I want to do that. I, I mean, and I want to, um, you know, located in the newsletter. Uh, th- that's why, by the way, it, it, you know, I've been, I've been vaguely imagining like this kind of fleshed out thing, like where these various elements I talk about with the Apocalypse Aversion project, whether it's non-zero-sum uh, games played by nations, in other words, problems they can both you know, nations can achieve win-win or lose-lose outcomes too. There's that. There's, um, psychology of tribalism. Uh, and I've had, but I kind of don't know where to start. Like, if, if I'm going to build out some kind of website or something that ultimately does include a whole lexicon and an explanation of the meaning of the terms and so on. And one thing I liked about existential psychological threats is it seemed to me like a, um, a region of this where I could start, right? Like I think there's like four or five things I'd put under this heading, start explaining their interconnection. And you know, it, it could be like a, so anyway, I, 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 I agree. I, I want to build out, I want to build this out. You know, it's, it's challenging. Um, but. I, I, we don't disagree about wanting to have a, a lexicon and 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 making it a cohesive thing. I mean, that's
1: yeah. I mean, I'm even. I mean, I don't know much about this, but I'm imagining something like a school of thought. Even like that, that there's a there's a and you wouldn't necessarily need to be alone on that, but but you get like minded allies that 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 agree enough to to really generate a, a kind of school of, of uh, thought that would have a pedagogy to because you I mean you see this in other forms whether it's kind sort of cultural bias awareness or uh uh I'm trying to think of some other examples but the ways that again in, in my world in the yoga world trauma informed being trauma informed is kind of the buzz thing now and and you know this as people are getting more aware of it uh um, people are, are are sort of encouraged to seek education around it to be a more well-rounded teacher in some sorts
0: to be to be trauma informed you said right okay um, yeah the uh, well I, I think on the point of um, you know finding allies it's funny I, I am trying to explore and find dimensions of connection with different schools and one thing I've only recently Thoroughly appreciate is that, you know, like, for example, these effective altruism people, you've heard of them, right? I've the I mean, well, heard of the oh, concept. They, they, about, it's know, it's are, related with Peter Singer. It started out as like, um you know, like figuring out if you're going to donate money to charity, where will it do the most good? Where will it get the most bang per buck? How many lives will you save via mosquito nets that are, you know, done by this one NGO versus – uh, nutrition, blah, blah, blah. So it, it started out as this kind of rigorous, um, exploration of how, how you get your altruism can get the most bang per buck. The effective altruism, um, movement. But I think it has other dimensions and this 80,000 hours podcast I was on. And again, the conversation is in the right show feed as well as in their feed, uh, with a guy named, uh, Rob Wiblin, um, Who's the host of that podcast? I realize that there's a a, a big part of the EA movement is a concern with existential risk. Uh, so like they're, they're interested in threats posed by arms races, bioweapons, climate change. And so, so on I, I mean I mean, I think that yeah, right, and that but the thing that I
1: think is unique about your dharma right is is the psychological root of 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 at the, at the it's the it's the psychological pee under the mattress that that uh is is kind of leaving everything uh, getting everything a little bit wobbly
0: yeah and, but and, and there but but there you know you could talk about this. Other community that may that that actually has some intersection with the effect of altruism community, the so-called rationalists, which are like across the board, and at least some of them are creepy, but because um, ideologically they cover a lot of ground. But there was an article about this in the New York Times that, that painted the community in pretty unflattering terms, but um, not entirely fairly, I think. But uh, they they are very concerned with. Cognitive biases, um, for example, there's a new book out by Julia Galef, who is a uh, – I've had her on my podcast talking about the rationalist community, and her, her book is called The Scout Mindset. She distinguishes between the soldier's mindset, like that's the enemy, kill them, and the scout's mindset, which is to go out in front of the soldiers and just get a clear lay of the land, just see things objectively. And uh, – so the, and there is that spirit in in that part of that movement. Uh, so you know I think ultimately uh you would like to find synergy with people who agree with you along any major dimension, right? Uh as long as they don't v- violate your 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 values along any major dimension, right? Um so I'm kind of trying to start to do that, but it's a tall order. There's a lot of other stuff. I'm, as you know, one's life compels one to do a number of things. Yes, yeah.
1: But I do think to, for this to have legs, to this to, for, to really get transformation occurring at the level that you want to see it, there need to be there needs to be a curriculum of practice. I don't. I can't. I don't see how else it's going to happen.
0: No, I I, I agree. And the practice. Uh, I mean the, the my own practice includes mindfulness meditation and is in that context and it makes sense for me to uh work with that because for one thing there are some people who know me mainly through that because they read my most recent book which was about that mm-hmm. um I uh I I don't really feel I've I've done a very good job of cultivating that community honestly I mean I don't uh uh, I I yeah. I, I guess I'm not totally like I. I wouldn't be a good meditation teacher. I guess I'm. I'm not like you or something. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I don't know. There's something. Well, no, no, no. You don't necessarily. You don't have that, to you know, be. I know, but you, but you don't
1: have to be the deliverer. You just right. you you write you write the programs. Right. Or you uh, help you help design the engineer the programs really.
0: Yeah. Well, that would be an interesting thing for us to think about.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's another. Another Dharma Bob episode to come.
0: So we'll just, you know, we'll build the myth. The myth will include the uh, practice and, and that will, and then, uh, mutter Fodder will see the answer as, uh, there's a groundswell of good intentions and, uh, mindful use of social media that envelops the world
1: well that that's another question I have is whether whether i think i i'm sympathetic to to mutter fodder's question there whether it, it, the medium itself is 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 ever salvageable and I know other people in in your comments threads yeah. have have sort of said that there's other forms that could you know we could de- design new social media platforms that would mitigate these kinds of problems and i'm that's fine but I also think there's something about the the attention that is being you know a friend of mine has a new book out, um, called The Stars in Our Pockets that's looking at how digital technology essentially created an inner climate change of consciousness. Uh-huh. Our, our attention span is just, it's like there's coral reefs of attention capacity that have just been decimated. And, and, and I think there's, and I think there's, there is interest and, and some developments too, like these communities of people really trying resisting by opting out. And, and returning to a, uh, not completely returning to like a, a, a Luddite light level, but you know, turning away from some of these excesses of the technological landscape that are causing these problems.
0: Yeah, I, I don't discourage that. I mean, we all need to I tend- actually, I, I think that's but more realistic. I have, I think a, but. That's more I have realistic. a but.
1: You go with your butt.
0: Okay. The, but the but is, I mean, I mean, first of all, we all have to tend to our mental health. Uh, and I don't doubt that you can use, uh, that uh, the state you achieve by kind of dropping out of social media by doing some good things. At the same time, social media right now is so influential that if nobody tries to improve it, we're probably in bad shape. I mean, it is doing so much right now to just, uh, create needless antagonism between groups of people that, uh, if all the People with good intentions drop out, that's definitely not gonna change it. And, you know, there are different things you can do. You can, you can lobby, uh, the big social media companies to change their algorithms. Algorithm transparency is a big hobby horse of mine. They should be, they should have, they should be legally compelled to make the algorithm public, to allow third party software companies to build their own interfaces on it, whatever. So there's various ways you can engage with a problem, and I respect people who don't engage at all, but somebody has to engage. There you are. <laughs> it has to be more than one person. That's the other thing. Okay, so uh, this is – uh I, I think this is – I've enjoyed this, and uh, – but a person my age really shouldn't try to talk for more than an hour and twenty six minutes at a time without a nap
1: or another sip of coffee
0: or more coffee, and and I would have to brew that, so I can't just walk over and get it. Um. So thank I you. We'll,
1: I think I think we'll have to leave till next time the the status of your meditation practice, um, which is fine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. No. no <laughs> don't, don't just just leave it. Let okay. It oh yeah, we'll leave them on the edge of their seats. This will keep, yeah. <laughs> keep them coming back. This will keep them coming. Okay.
1: We'll leave Great that for to you.
0: for next time. Same here. So, uh, thanks, and and let's do it again soon.
1: Sounds good.